in the words of the first beatitude, you realize that you were a spiritual beggar or like the publican, the tax collector in Jesus' story, you were reduced to beating on your chest and crying out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, because you saw yourself in the light of God's law. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series with part two of Caught in the Act. We're looking at sin and the law of God as expressed in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. And last time you were reminded that every unbeliever is still under the law of God. As a sinful human being, when it comes to the law of God, you really have only three options, only one of which works. You can try to keep the law perfectly and earn eternal life. You can then fail and be judged and punished for every violation. Or you can turn in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ and to his death as the sacrifice for sin to satisfy the justice of God for his broken law and thus find forgiveness and eternal life in Him. Where do you find yourself today? Attempting to be perfect yet failing or completely dependent on the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ? Keep these questions in mind as we join Tom Pennington now here on The Word Unleashed. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words saying, you imagine hearing God Himself speak, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here's number one. And what I want to do in each case is I want to give you a summary of what that command is saying. And I'm going to put them up on the PowerPoint because you don't have notes in your bulletin. I want you to be able to look back on these. They'll be online when this message is posted. Number one, verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. The point of this command is that we are to know and to acknowledge Yahweh, the God who has revealed himself as the eternal I am, to be the only true God and our God. Number two, verse four, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, that is to thousand generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. By the way, can I just stop and say, most of humanity likes to think of themselves as somewhere between loving God with all their heart and hating him. God doesn't see it that way at all. Every human being either loves God or hates God. Now, what is the point of the second command? God is to be worshiped. He must be worshiped, but only in the way he has prescribed. Number three, verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. We are to fear God and to treat God and everything connected with God with the greatest possible reverence and respect. Number four, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, 
but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What's the point of this command? At its heart, it's this. God is the Lord of our time, and he demands that we devote most of our time to working and that we set aside the time he has prescribed to worship him. Number five, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. God has established a hierarchy of authority. He has put others in positions of authority over us on this planet, and we must honor them. Number six, verse 13, you shall not murder. The point of this command is that God is the giver of life, and we must respect life and take all reasonable steps to preserve our own lives as well as the lives of others. Number seven, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. God has given the gift of sexuality, and he demands that it be used in marriage alone, only enjoyed within the context of marriage as he designed. Number eight, verse 15, you shall not steal. God has distributed material wealth according to his own sovereign purposes, and he demands that we respect the property of others and that we be wise stewards of our own. Number nine, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God demands that we maintain and promote truth in all of our communication, even as he himself does. And number 10, verse 17, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The point of the 10th commandment is this. God demands that we be content with and grateful for our condition, our circumstances in life, and our estate. In other words, our social status and our material prosperity. Now that's an overview of the 10 commandments. But let me tell you, there is so much more here. How do we go about discovering the richness that is in the Ten Commandments? Well, in God's remarkable wisdom, He included the principles of interpreting the Ten Commandments within the commands themselves. Let me show you the three primary principles of interpreting the Ten Commandments. They're right here within the commands. Number one, eight of the Ten Commands are stated in negative form. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Showing us that God forbids all of the sinful actions that fit into each of these categories of life. Let me give you an example. Let me just walk through the Ten Commandments again and let me tell you what they forbid. The sinful actions they forbid. You have broken the Ten Commandments if, number one, you have loved or worshipped anything more than God. Number two, if you have failed to consistently worship God from your heart, or if you have done so in a way contrary to his prescription. Number three, you've broken the third command. If you have taken God's name in vain as a curse 
or if you've used it lightly in expressions like, oh my God, or if you have ever treated anything lightly that belongs to God, that is connected to God. Number four, you've broken the fourth commandment. If you have failed to work hard, or if you have failed to set aside time each week in your weekly schedule to worship. Number five, you have failed to obey your parents or have treated those in authority over you, whether parents, husbands, elders, bosses, or government officials, with contempt or dishonor. Number six, you've broken the sixth commandment. If you have verbally assaulted someone, if you have been physically violent with someone, if you have neglected the physical well-being of yourself or you've been negligent of the physical well-being of someone else or if you have committed murder, if you have stolen anything from anyone, including such intangibles as time from your employer, if you have been careless with what belongs to you or you have looked for ways to take advantage of others in order to enrich yourself. Number nine, if you have lied or deceived about yourself or about others when it's been to your advantage. And number 10, you've broken the 10th commandment. If you have coveted what does not belong to you and are consistently ungrateful and discontent, rebelling against God's providence in your life. There's the first way we interpret the 10 commandments. All of the sinful actions are forbidden. A second principle of interpretation is this. Two of the Ten Commandments are stated in positive form. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. What does that show us? It shows us that God commands all the corresponding righteous actions in each category of the Ten Commandments. In other words, the negative commands show us that we must not do certain things, but the fact that two of them are positive don't simply tell us that those two are positive. They tell us that God expects us to do all of the positive things related to all ten of them. So let me again put it positively. If you're going to obey the Ten Commandments, number one, you must love God more than anything or anyone else. Number two, you must truly worship God from the heart in the way He has prescribed. Number three, you must truly respect and honor God as God and treat God his name, and those things connected to God with the utmost respect. Number four, you must delight in gathering with God's people to worship him on the Lord's day as he has commanded us as New Testament believers. You must always rather be here worshiping than somewhere else doing something else. Number five, you must respect and honor your parents and all of those that God has placed as human authorities in your life. Number six, you must take every reasonable step to preserve both your own life and the lives of others. Number seven, you must remain sexually pure, committed to your spouse alone. Number eight, you must care for your belongings and those that belong to others as a stewardship from God. Number nine, you must always tell the truth. And number 10, you must be grateful and content with what you have and with your circumstances in life. The fact that two of the commands are positive tell us that God expects all of those positive actions from us. There's a third principle of interpretation, and this gets even harder. 
the tenth commandment explicitly forbids certain thoughts, coveting. What does that show us? It shows us that in the other nine commandments, God forbids all sinful thinking of that kind and demands the corresponding righteous thoughts. That's comprehensive. In other words, it's not enough not to do the things that are forbidden. It's not enough to do the things that are required. Your thinking has to be in line as well. Here's how the Heidelberg Catechism captures this. It does it beautifully. Question, what does the 10th commandment require of us? Here's the answer in the Heidelberg Catechism. That not even the slightest inclination or thought contrary to any of God's commandments shall ever rise in our hearts, but that all times we shall hate all sin with our whole heart and delight in all righteousness. That's what the 10th commandment is teaching. It's not enough to do the external. Instead, our hearts have to be in line with the commandments of God. Not only not thinking what we shouldn't think, but positively thinking what we should in each of those categories of life. Now you can see why this commandment was devastating to the Apostle Paul. Now you can see how God used it, how God used it to show him he was a sinner. How? Because the Tenth Commandment showed Paul that the law was not merely about external conformity, but that it was about the heart. Now, if you're familiar with New Testament history, you know this was a huge issue for the Pharisees. And remember, Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Jesus had to address this constantly. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. The Pharisees were constantly making the law about the externals. And Jesus said, no. Matthew 5, verse 20. I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he quotes the commandment, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. That's the commandment. But the Pharisees taught that if as long as you hadn't actually murdered someone, you hadn't broken that commandment. And Jesus says, not true. That's not what the law was intended to do. And he teaches us, verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. All you have to do is get angry with someone and you've broken the commandment against murder. He goes on in verse 22 to say, If you then lash out at someone with angry words, you've broken the commandment against murder. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever been angry with someone in your heart? Have you ever lashed out at someone with angry words? Jesus says, you've murdered. You're guilty of breaking the command against murder. He doesn't stop there. Verse 27 You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, that's the commandment. But what the Pharisees taught about that command, again, was external. As long as you haven't actually physically gotten involved with another person, then you've kept that commandment. Jesus says, no. Verse 28, but I say to you, here's what the law really means, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All you have to do is lust in your heart and you are guilty of breaking the commandment against adultery. You can see how devastating this is. But they missed it. 
The Pharisees made it all external, and because it was external, they were okay. That's why Jesus, you remember in the parable of the, of the tax collector and the Pharisee who go up to the temple to pray in Luke 18, he, he has the, the Pharisee praying this way, Luke 18, verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. In other words, that I don't do what other people do. And he says, I'm not a, I don't swindle other people. I'm not an adulterer, never committed adultery. I'm not like this tax collector who's done all those things. Or think of another story. You remember the story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10? The rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, and his question betrays a lot about him. He says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says something most unusual to him. You remember? Here's what Mark says. Jesus returned to this guy and said, you know the commandments. Do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. He quotes the commandments to him. And what does the rich young ruler say in response to Jesus? He says, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. I've obeyed them all. How could he say that? Because he'd made them all external. And Jesus comes back to him with this devastating response. You remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Now why in the world did Jesus tell this guy to go sell everything and come follow him? He doesn't require everyone who comes to him in faith to sell everything. Why did Jesus tell this guy to do it? Because Jesus was hitting at his obedience to the law. Jesus quoted this to him. Jesus said, go sell everything that you own and come follow me because he was showing him that he had broken the 10th commandment. He was filled with covetousness. He was after his stuff. He loved his stuff so much. And so Jesus lowers the boom and says, go sell everything. What was Jesus doing? He was telling him, look at the 10th commandment. You haven't kept them all in any way. Now the apostle Paul had this same flawed view of the law. He thought, just like the rich young ruler, that it was all external and that he had kept them all. Turn to Philippians chapter three. Philippians three, and you see Paul's spiritual autobiography before Christ and those things that he he had great confidence in, put his confidence in. Verse 4, I have confidence in the flesh, or did, and part of that confidence, notice in verse 6, as to the righteousness which is in the law, what? Found blameless. Paul says, when it came to keeping the law, perfect record, because Paul too was seeing it external. He was seeing it as outside of him, like the rich young ruler. He'd kept it all. So what happened to Paul? Go back to Romans chapter 7, and now it all makes sense. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. You see, what Paul is saying is that when he really began to understand the 10th commandment, he suddenly realized that God cared about what was going on in his heart. 
that all the commandments were not just about external actions, but the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. He realized that God's chief concern, and always has been, is the heart. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 30 says, God, you will render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men. Proverbs 21.2, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Proverbs 24.12, if you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work based on what he finds in the heart? Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you will die someday. And if you stand before God, your creator, without Jesus Christ, you're going to be judged by the law, not your external actions alone, but your heart. God knows everything that goes on in your heart. He hasn't missed one thought, one attitude, and that's the basis on which you will be judged and condemned. You will be found guilty. He searches the heart. Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways. Listen, if God looks in your heart and mind, nobody passes that test. So when Paul really came to understand the Tenth Commandment and its demand for righteousness in the heart, he realized that he was a sinner through and through. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, then what happened to the Apostle Paul at some point in your life has happened to you. Through the work of the Spirit, you came to truly see your sin, your utter failure to keep God's law. Listen, if if we interpret the law the right way, there isn't a person in this room who hasn't broken every single one of them. You haven't kept one, and neither have I. And if you're a Christian, there was a point in your life when God the Holy Spirit brought you to see that, to see your hopelessness. In the words of the first beatitude, you realize that you were a spiritual beggar or like the publican, the tax collector in Jesus' story, you were reduced to beating on your chest and crying out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, because you saw yourself in the light of God's law, and you realized you had no hope. In fact, let me just say, this is an accurate test of whether or not you're a Christian. If you think you've done pretty well on some points, all that shows is that you are clueless about God's law. Because the truth is, every one of us has broken every one of them in the divine intention. Now, this deeper, devastating understanding of God's law is not intended just to make us feel guilty, although it certainly does that. It's intended to drive us to Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 22, Paul says, Scripture has shut all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to all those who believe. And then he says this in Galatians 3.24, listen to this. The law has become our tutor to bring us to Christ. 
God's moral law, those commands we just looked at, those devastating commands that go internal and and tell us what we ought to be thinking. When we see ourselves reflected in the law, what does it do? It drives us to Jesus Christ because we realize I can never be made right with God by my own righteousness. I can never earn a place with God. Nothing that I can do can ever make up for obedience to God and I've broken every command. Judgment's coming and it's what I deserve. The law becomes a teacher to say, you need Jesus Christ. He's your only hope. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his current series, Caught in the Act. Tom will have part three for you on our next broadcast. Do join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the word unleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.